Luke chapter 18. I want to first tell you about a guy, someone every college girl would be proud to introduce to daddy. I've got three girls that I'll marry off someday, Lord willing, so I'm thinking about this. Imagine a guy who's young, healthy, maybe even athletic, religious, he's serious about eternal things, comes from a good family where Bible has been taught and taught at a young age. He's now a leader in his church. He's respectful and yet outgoing. Oh, and he's very wealthy. Sounds like the perfect guy, doesn't it? So much going for him, so well-rounded, he has it all together. Who wouldn't want to be this guy? Seems to have everything and everything you need to be happy. But this guy's sad. This guy is sad and confused, and more importantly, he's lost. Despite all his interest in eternal things and religious things, he's lost. Luke 18 tells us about such a guy. Luke 18 helps us understand how someone could have everything and yet be sad, confused, and lost. Luke 18, starting in verse 18, it says, A ruler questioned Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, behold, we've left our homes and followed you. He said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. We often call this story the rich young ruler. Matthew's account, chapter 19, tells us that he was young. Luke doesn't mention that. Mark's account, Mark chapter 10, tells us that he ran to Jesus. Maybe he's an athlete. Maybe he's healthy at the very least. He's such a well-rounded guy. It says he's a ruler, which means that he's a synagogue elder. He's a leader, good upbringing. He's known the law from his childhood. He's tried to keep it from his youth. And now he's seeking Jesus out. He's coming to Jesus humbly. Mark's account even says that he bowed before Jesus as he asked this question, the question of eternal life. Well, I think there are five questions we can pose to this passage. 
The first is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who does this man come to? He comes and he calls him in verse 18, good teacher. Of course, he's right. Jesus is good and Jesus is a good teacher. But that's not enough. You see, Jesus can see hearts, he knows thoughts, and he knows what this man means by good. And so Jesus asks him a follow-up question. Why do you call me good? He says, there's no one who's good but God. Clearly what Jesus is getting at here is, is the question of whether this guy understands that Jesus is God. Jesus is good, but he's not relatively good. He's not like better than some or better even than all. He's God. He's completely good. That's the first question. Who is Jesus? He's God. Secondly, how do we get eternal life? How does this man get eternal life? That's his question. That's his goal. Verse 18. And this is put differently in the Bible. Different ways of putting this thing we call eternal life. Or forgiveness with God. Or being reconciled to God. Or being saved. Or entering the kingdom. Or going to heaven. We have so many different ways of putting it. And there are so many ways of putting it in the Bible. But they're all getting at the same thing. There is no question of greater importance than this one. How to be saved. How to have eternal life. How to be made right with God. Let me ask you, are you doing at least as well as this man in asking that question? Are you? Notice too that it's not merely a question of future peace. But this man at the end of the story went away sad. So this is also a question of of everyday life, of dealing with that guilty conscience that you are struggling with and trying to suppress, trying to bury underneath your pillow as you go to sleep at night. This man went away sad, confused, anxious, restless, because, well, he refused to give up his money, his stuff, but he also knew that something's not right. I wonder if it's like that with you. How do we get eternal life? Well, what we've seen in Luke over and over is that the first step towards eternal life is to feel your need for a Savior, for Christ. That's the key to understanding this passage. Understanding your need, first of all. This man didn't understand his need for a Savior. And Jesus said this from the beginning. Let me quote it again. We've quoted it so many times in our study of Luke. You know where I'm going. Chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, Jesus came for the what? He came for the sick, not those who think that they're well. He's a a physician who came for those who know they have need. We could could put it in terms of a physician in medicine. We could say, before we can understand the medicine, we have to understand something of the disease. If I told you that I, I bought you chemo, you would just think, what? Why? I mean, you mean your insurance paid for it? No, I paid cash for chemo for you. And if you don't think you have cancer, if you don't think you need chemo, if a doctor hasn't told you that you need that and it's good for you, then you just think, oh, well, thanks. I'll put it on eBay or something, I guess. No, we have to understand something of the disease before we understand anything of the need for the medicine. Jesus is the medicine, but this this story here is about 
the illness. It's about need. Jesus tests this man's sense of need on two different levels. You see in verse 20, this is the first level, he gives him some basic commandments. These are the horizontal commandments of the Ten Commandments. They can be summarized with what Jesus said is the second greatest commandment. Remember, he said the first greatest commandment is to to love God with heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what I mean by horizontal commandments. And so, Jesus says, don't murder, don't lie, don't steal, honor mom and dad. Jesus says, this is where you go for eternal life. He's testing the man. He's not really saying, if you do these, you will have eternal life, because no one's really fully done them. But this guy says that he has. Now, in one sense, he's right, I'm sure. I mean, he says he's been doing these things since his youth, verse 21. Now, No doubt he learned these things early on. Hopefully your kids did too. And hopefully he's been trying to do them from early on. And he probably doesn't mean, I've done them perfectly. He means, I've done them earnestly. I've done them relatively consistently. But that's not enough. So Jesus takes it a a step further. Jesus tests this man's need a a little bit further. You see, he has self-righteousness. Here's where he's wrong. He's overly optimistic about how well he's done with these commandments. He hasn't accurately described his performance with these commandments. He hasn't pointed out that, well, once he did talk back to mom, you know, or twice or three times. He thinks that he's good, even though that Jesus has just established there's no one who's good but God. You see that? He missed one of the first lessons early on that no one's good. There's none who do right. We're all fallen. We're all sinners. So he's essentially asking Jesus if there's an advanced placement course for people like him. Is there an AP religion that I can take? I mean, I've done those. I've done the basics. I've, I've done the Ten Commandments. What else do you got? And Jesus says, okay, sell all you have. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Again, he doesn't do well. He refuses to sell what he has. And the reason is simply, according to Luke, that he was very rich. It's the only explanation for why he wouldn't give up what he has for eternal life. He wouldn't give up what he has, sell to the poor, follow Jesus, because he was very rich. Because he loved his riches, apparently. Apparently because he wasn't fully interested in eternal life. Notice, he's interested in coming to Jesus. He's interested in asking that all-important question to Jesus, what is eternal life? How do I get eternal life? But he's not willing to go the distance. It was a priority, but not the priority. Which leads to the third question, man, trying to diagnose the problem here. What stands in the way of salvation? What stands in the way of salvation for this guy? Now, Jesus isn't saying that any of of us can obtain salvation by selling off what we have and giving it to the poor. He he sounds like he's saying that. But as we look at what he says here as a whole, and as we look at what he says elsewhere, 
We have to conclude that instead he's testing this man. Jesus knows this man's specific spiritual roadblock, the thing that's standing in the way of recognizing his spiritual need. And Jesus is lovingly trying to expose it to the man by giving him more law, by, by showing him, you're not cutting it. You're not, perf- you're not perfect. Your performance is, is not A+. Plus. It's not 100%. And he uses money to show him that. This man's idol is money. It's his savior. If he has to choose between Jesus the savior and money the savior, he chooses money the savior. And that's the thing that keeps him from feeling his need and seeking help. We could put it this way. This man seeks righteousness for salvation and he seeks riches for satisfaction. An R and an S and an R and an S. He seeks righteousness for salvation, his own righteousness. And he seeks, he seeks riches for his satisfaction. And these so often go together, righteousness in, in riches. And that's why Jesus exclaims, exclaims in verse 24, how hard it is for a rich man to get saved. To enter the kingdom. Now, why? Why is it hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom? Well, I can think of dozens of reasons, literally. I won't give you that many, but let me give you several. Rich people are often self reliant, they have the resources to tap into when something's wrong, they don't need much. Rich people know that process of work. And then earn, and and you get reward. Wisdom plus earnest effort produces my reward, my earning. I get it. They know that process well. They know that that equation. They're, They're not needy. They're not in the habit of asking. They're not in the habit of receiving like children are. Remember we saw that last week? Look at verse 17. Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Like a child? Yet last week we said children are so good at taking, at receiving, especially when we're talking about an infant, a newborn, like Jesus is mentioning here. They're so good at receiving, not so great at giving. They have nothing to give, in fact. They come out naked and and angry and cold and afraid. They need covering. They need food. They need protection. They need everything. Parents do everything but beat the heart for them almost, right? They're desperate. They're needy. But not the rich. The rich are the opposite of that. Scripture also tells that there's, there's an extra measure of arrogance and pride with riches, at least a temptation towards those. And that's scary because in several places, Scripture says that God resists the, the what? The proud. And he gives grace to the what? To the humble. He resists the proud. That word for resist there is, it's a military term. It's what a commander would do as he sets up army against another army. God goes to war against the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. It's a saving issue. It's an eternal issue. On top of all this, riches come with an increased preoccupation with them. 
Ecclesiastes talks about this. Inherent in riches is a growing preoccupation with those riches. The Bible also says that there's an inherent deceitfulness about riches and about greed. All other sins, you know when you've done them. You commit adultery, you know you've committed adultery. I hope. That's funny, you're supposed to laugh right there. (laughs) With greed, you don't know that you've done greed. You don't know that you've been greedy. It's inherently deceitful. We think everyone else is greedy, not us. We think greed is for those who make, you know, double what we do. We think greed is for Wall Street, but not us. The problem's out there. No, we're greedy. We struggle with that too. Now, we shouldn't find encouragement in this passage by thinking that we're not rich like this guy is. might be tempted to think that. You're not rich, and so you don't have the problem standing in the way of eternal life that this man does. But number one, most of us in here on a global level are very rich. As you think about time and riches and poverty throughout time, we are enormously rich abundantly blessed. You, you compare what rich was in first century times compared to what we have now, and you, know, you think, well, I've got debt, I'm not rich. Just the ability to go into debt is part of being rich in our culture, right? I mean, having a credit card is, is part of being rich that they didn't know in the first century times. Getting a mortgage is something they didn't know in first century times. We are rich, And even if we're less rich than this guy, keep in mind that this whole story, the way it unfolds, leads to the disciples saying, who then can be saved? In other words, Jesus exclaims how hard it is for the rich to be saved, that the disciples who aren't rich wonder if they can be saved. They're not rich. They've left everything. They're following Jesus. They're as poor as Jesus is. They're homeless. They're vagabonds. And they say, wait a minute. Can we be saved then? Hmm. Well, then what is the answer? Can anyone be saved? That's the fourth question. How will anybody be saved? Common perception in the first century was that rich people were blessed people. It was understood that You had because you've been blessed by God because you've been good. And so they thought that they were right, accepted by God, right with God, and their money was proof of that. And that's why the disciples are so shocked that Jesus speaks disparagingly of this rich guy. If anyone has a head start in getting in, it's this guy. He's got the riches that show his blessing, that prove he's been Righteous, not to mention he even says he's been righteous since he was young. Now, Jesus says that the rich guy isn't righteous. That's shocking to them, it isn't to us today. But hear this this should be maybe a little shocking to you. Jesus says the righteous guy isn't righteous. The righteous guy isn't righteous. I mean, Paul said it there's none righteous. No, not one, as he quoted the Old Testament. The righteous guy isn't righteous. He's doing everything right, he thinks. Asking the million-dollar question of eternal life. 
coming to Jesus, bowing before Jesus, a leader in his synagogue, and yet he goes away sad. Jesus likens this guy getting saved to a fat camel getting shoved through the eye of a needle. Verse 25. Now, I've heard preachers before say that Jesus was referring to this narrow gate in ancient Near East. And so a camel fitting through this gate was tough. They would have to squat down and they'd have to shimmy their way through. And so what Jesus is getting at here is saying it's very difficult for a rich man to get saved. It's like a camel having to shimmy his way through this place called the eye of the needle. Except there's no record of any place being called eye of the needle. I think it's a preacherism. A preacherism, you have to know that these exist, by the way. Hopefully you won't hear them here too much. Um, But a preacherism is when a preacher hears something from another preacher and he goes, that'll preach. And you don't have to look it up. If you heard it and it'll preach, then you say it. And I think this is one of those preacherisms that you just can't find at any reliable source. Not to mention the fact that that's not what Jesus is getting at. It's clear in the passage. Jesus isn't saying it's difficult. He's saying it's impossible. It's exactly what we would tend to think that this passage is saying. Jesus is using the ridiculous word picture of shoving a fat camel through the eye of a needle. I I found this great picture online this week. Someone did Legos of this. You can see the guy, push harder, dude. Like, you know, maybe we can get it through. See how absurd that is? And he's holding something that isn't even a needle. If it is, it's a giant needle. That's, a, that's not a needle. But you get the picture from this alone, right? That that's not going to go. That's not going to fit. He, it doesn't matter how hard you push. It's impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle. But... With God, it's possible somehow. It's humanly impossible for a rich man to get saved. But with God, all things are possible. Did you see the movie The Blind Side? The football player who, let me spoil it for you, he gets into the pros. Um, It's one of those movies you can, you already knew that, right? Did you happen to see the slogan that was on the school that he went to? It said... With men, things are possible. With God, all things are possible. Well, it's the same thing. Let me repeat it in case you missed it. It says, with men, things are possible. With God, all things are possible. Now, I went online. It just drove me crazy. I went online and looked up the school. I mean, it's a real story. So this is a real school. And I looked up their slogan and they get it right. They quote the actual verse, which is, with men, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So you know what that means? Some Hollywood director somewhere said, no one's really going to believe that. So let's change it to, with men, it is possible. And also with God, it is possible. Take your pick. You can have men do it. You can have God do it. It doesn't really matter. With both, it's possible. Do you see that we are desperately trying to escape the reality of our inability, of the impossibility of our salvation? We just can't believe that the Bible says it would speak so, so harmingly to our self-esteem. It's impossible for you to be saved. No, this guy, 
trusted in his righteousness for salvation. He trusted in his riches for satisfaction. And those are impossible. But Jesus alone is the answer to both to salvation and satisfaction. Now, I, I think Jesus is actually saying a little more here than what we've said so far. I think Jesus is saying something at a little deeper level than what you might think. Let me ask you a question. What precisely is the thing that is humanly impossible in this passage? Is Jesus saying salvation is humanly impossible? It's impossible to earn your way to God. It's impossible for rich guys to build up enough righteousness to earn their salvation. No, he's not saying that. It's true, right? We know that. It's impossible for us to earn our salvation. It's a contradiction of terms. Earning and salvation. It's true, but he's not saying that here. I think what Jesus is saying here is that conversion is humanly, humanly impossible. Seeing your need for a savior is humanly impossible. That's what launched Jesus into the word picture of the camel and the needle going together. That man trusted in his righteousness and then didn't see a need for a savior, went away sad and dejected. He couldn't come to the first step of the equation. Forget faith, he didn't yet see his need. And Jesus says it's impossible for us to see our need. He says it's easier to shove a fat camel through the eye of a needle. Easier. I think what that means then is only God can get us there. I think what it means then is that this passage is talking about what we call divine initiative in salvation. God must initiate. He must come and open blind eyes. He must come and open deaf ears. He must come and awaken dead hearts. It's what he calls in John 6, drawing, reeling us in. It's what he calls in John 3, the new birth, being born from above. It's what Ephesians 2 calls being made alive. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but he has made us alive. He's awakened us so that we would believe. Our problem is that bad. It's not just that you can't save yourself. You can't awaken yourself to realize your need in your own strength. It takes the miracle of regeneration for you to see, for you rich people like me, to see that we need a savior. And then we come to the last question. Can't we ever commend ourselves to God? Can't we ever? Well, Peter tries. Look at verse 28. Peter, hearing that Jesus just said, if you sell all that you have, give it to the poor and follow me, you'll have treasure in heaven. So what does Peter do? He whips out his card. He lays down a card and plays it. We left our homes. <laughs> we did it. Yay, I'm in. I'm in. 
And what does Jesus say? You haven't left squat. You haven't given squat. You haven't earned squat. Look at what he says in verse 29 and 30. You've left home and wife and brother and parent and child, sure, for the sake of the kingdom, but you'll receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. You think, you think you're earning the kingdom right now, Peter? You think you've given anything? What, you left home in order to follow the Savior? Notice that it's the present tense in verse 30. Who will not receive many times as much at this time. Jesus doesn't say, I know you've left home, but don't worry, heaven's coming and we've got gold streets. He's saying, you're right now receiving many times over what you left. You haven't sacrificed anything. And then he points him to his death. The key. Three more verses, 31 through 33. Jesus says, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles, be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they've scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. You see how Jesus points them to the crux of the issue. You know, in Latin, crux is cross. The crux of the matter is the cross. The cross. That's where we see our payment taken from us, put on Jesus. And that's where the hope of righteousness for us, not righteousness earned, but righteousness given, is shown to us. It's Christ upon the cross. And yet victorious in the third day. We can never commend ourselves to God. Our only hope those two verses there, 32 and 33, he'll be mocked and mistreated, spit upon, scourged, and killed. On the third day, he'll rise again. Now, I want to apply this passage in three different ways. I want to encourage a sort of take-home, some take-home homework for you to apply this passage in these three ways, in ways that you know are specific and useful to your life. The first is belief. There's some lessons for belief here. Are you trusting in your righteousness for salvation? Do you feel your need for him? If not, pray, pray. Is there an idol of your heart that Jesus would pick at if you were to come to him and say, what is eternal life and how should I have it? Would he say, here's the thing that's standing between you feeling your need for salvation and me. What would, he, what would he pick on? What would he say? What would he mention? Would it maybe be success? Success is your savior. That's the thing that you feel justified in. You feel accepted in. Maybe it's acceptance with others. Just what they think of you. And If you feel accepted with them, then you feel like life is good and life is okay. Or maybe you've reverted back, Christian, into relating to God through your own righteousness. Oh, you don't come to Jesus saying, I've done these things since my youth, and so that's why I'm going to heaven. But, but maybe you feel like your relationship with Jesus rides the ups and downs of your performance in the Christian life. 
so that if you're praying well, you feel like he's smiling big. You know, if you've been doing pretty good and reading your Bible every day, you feel as though he loves you more. Or when you don't, you feel like you have no way of approaching him. Have you ever gone a long time without praying because you know things aren't right between you and God and you feel like you have to do a little bit better for a while, then start going to him? Doesn't that just prove that we've reverted a little bit back to this, to this rich young ruler's mindset here, approaching God in our own works, approaching him in what we have to bring, but we have nothing to bring. We come as children or we don't come at all. We come as the tax collector who beats on his chest and only says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and that's it. Not, thank God I'm not like so-and-so who does this and I don't, who doesn't do that, but I do. There are lessons for belief here. Secondly, there are lessons on money, of course. Do you continue to ponder the dangers of riches? I think a lot of us want to know whether Jesus is saying in this passage, it's good to get rid of all your stuff. And I know that you know I'm supposed to say right now, no, he's not telling you to get rid of all your stuff. And then you say, phew, good. And you go about your normal Sunday afternoon. But let's remember some other passages, okay? Let's remember that we should be rich in heaven. Let's remember we should do good with what he's given us, not just enjoy it even though we're free to enjoy it. Let's, be, let's remember that 1 Timothy 6 says that money isn't by itself the root of all evil, but love of money is the root of all evil. Let's remember that 1 Timothy 6 says that many, in desiring to be rich, have pierced their heart and been led astray to eternal destruction. Let's remember that. Let's remember that the third soil in Luke 8, remember there are four soils here in that parable? The third soil looks like it believes, even begins to bear some fruit, but it's choked. What's it choked by? Riches and worries of this world. Riches and worries of this world can keep people from heaven. Let's ask hard questions about our money, about being rich instead toward God and laying up treasures in heaven like Luke 12 tell us. The third category of application is that this passage speaks to our witness. It gives us lessons for our own witness, right? Jesus is the perfect evangelist, and so there are some things we can't take away from this, right? He knows hearts. We don't. So you try testing people, and you could fail miserably, right? I want you to sell your Lexus and give it to the poor, and the guy goes, what are you talking about? Is that in the Bible? No, but Jesus told this guy once to sell all he had and give it to the poor. And I'm just telling you, I'm trying to expose the idol of your heart. You don't know whether that's an idol in his heart or not. So be careful. But here are some things we can take away from Jesus, the evangelist, in Luke 18. Notice that Jesus doesn't just make this as easy as possible, but Jesus is more concerned to get to the heart to see that this is real belief or not. Now, Jesus would seem to fail 
at evangelism by our standards today, right? Jesus, a guy came to you and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And you didn't close the deal? I mean, can you imagine getting that at work? Someone comes up to you at work, walks up to your desk and says, I'd like to know what I need to do to have eternal life. You'd say, I've been working here for 25 years, being good, I didn't steal a stapler. Uh, have you noticed this? Have you noticed my integrity? I've been waiting for someone to ask me for 25 years. And now you finally ask. You'd think, this is it. This is why I've been being good. <laughs> Jesus blows it. Because this guy goes away sad. But no, no, see, Jesus didn't blow it. The guy didn't yet see his need. What point is Jesus upon the cross if this guy doesn't see why Jesus died on the cross? So get rid of, by the way, little Christian-isms that don't make any sense to the world. Do you want to invite Jesus into your heart? The New Age mystic says, yeah, why not? I got a lot of things in my heart. I'll put that one in there too. Do you want to make Jesus Lord and Savior? I don't know what that means, but sure. You see, people could say yes to a lot of this stuff. You should say this prayer after me. Okay, I like prayer. I'll say it. What prayer is it? You see, this guy would have gone along with any of those. But Jesus instead got to the heart. Get to the heart. It's hard, but get to the heart. Ask probing questions that get to the heart. Do it lovingly. Don't do it condescendingly. Do it lovingly. Do it in a side sort of way. You know, Jesus does that. He, he doesn't come out and say, you're not good. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Implication is this guy isn't good. Don't be surprised or discouraged when we see the same kind of things happening in our witness. Remember, Jesus has to shove the fat camel through the eye of a needle, and only he can do that miracle. But he does it when they have the words. Get them the words. Proclaim the words. Love them through actions and proclaim to them the words. And then stand back and watch. And sometimes you'll see the miracle of a fat, rich camel getting shoved through the eye of the needle into eternal life, just like he's done with you. I pray he's done that with you.